And welcome to Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers, a podcast about books and reading them and talking about them. On this podcast, uh, we will be reading Wuthering Heights, uh, several chapters per episode and talking about it with our expert, Charlotte Sampson, a.k.a. the Miss Charlotte of the title. Uh, Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers is not only a mouthful, but also an audio production of the Oklahoma Theatre Group, or YTG, a nonprofit theatre company based in Japan. They create devised original plays, sometimes based on old books or other literature, so a deep dive into Victoriana seemed like a good idea at the time. This is our first episode, well, kind of second. Actually, we recorded a pilot episode before we decided to go back to the drawing board, but here we are, and let me introduce the people you will be listening to. So at the head of our virtual table running the class, we have the aforementioned Charlotte Sampson, who is working on her PhD on Victorian literature. Specifically on Charlotte Bronte, am I right? Uh, no. No. Uh, Charlotte Bronte is Clarify. part of the thesis, but uh, overall, I'm doing kind of an overall survey of emotional labor and women in the workplace in Victorian literature. That is much more interesting and specific than what I said. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, so Charlotte is our expert uh, for this podcast and will be guiding us through Wuthering Heights. Uh, this podcast will be her chance to treat us the way she can't treat her actual students when we when when they screw up uh 
Charlotte is waking up early to join us from Ontario, Canada, uh, where she lives with her wife. So we hope she's had her coffee and isn't too cranky. Actually, we just saw her drinking it a second ago um, in a very undignified manner, apparently. <laughs> if you hear dog noises in the background, that would be Mr. Darcy, her dog, because, of course, her dog is named Mr. Darcy. He's a standard poodle. He's a charming gentleman. He's just wonderful. I love him. <laughs> I hope you love your dog. All right. Joining us on my virtual right is Daniel Wishes. Uh, Daniel, you're, I can't remember. I, are you in Tokyo or Saitama or, or Chiba? Am I getting, what am I getting wrong here? I'm in Saitama. You're in Saitama now. Because I knew you moved. I just wasn't sure whether you moved out of Saitama. I, I did live in Chiba. It was a long time ago. Uh, hey, everyone. I'm Daniel. I'm present here for uh, Miss Charlotte's class. I'm an Aries. I like long walks on the beach. I'm here to chew bubblegum and talk about Wuthering Heights, and I'm all out of bubblegum. There is to be no bubblegum in Miss Charlotte's class. Oh, dear. Yeah, and especially not on a podcast, because that would sound awful. Um, so just continue with Daniel's introduction beyond his um, personal ad that he gave for us. Uh, if you are a podcast aficionado, you may have heard him on his own podcast, The Weird Movie Club, which he hosts. Daniel, is it the movies that are weird or the club? It's both. Both. And the people Double. as well. Double pa and the people, which is not even a part of the title. So right. it's, wow, it's like triple, triple threat. Uh, Daniel is also the writer for the multiple award-winning Mochinosha uh, Puppet Company, which he did actually, he did not write this intro himself because he was too, he wrote one and it did not include the multiple award-winning bit, but that is true and I'm putting it in. Thank you. Because um, they make awesome puppet shows. Uh, they're not touring this year for obvious reasons, but they do tour. So if they come to a city near, near you at some point, I highly advise getting some tickets and get them in advance because they... Their shows like Space Hippo and Shadow Kingdom and Green Man, they sell out fast. Okay, on my virtual left is Judy Ito. She is a recent university graduate who is also the assistant artistic director of the Yokohama Theatre Group. Last year, Judy directed the YTG adaptation of Antigone set on a post-apocalyptic aircraft carrier. If you want to know more about that, you'll have to ask her. She recently was one of the key organizers on YTG's COVID Cabaret, an experiment in live performance on the internet. So welcome, Judy. Thank you. Hello, Victorian literature. It's my first time reading Victorian literature. So please go easy on me, cool. Charlotte. <laughs> Everyone has to start somewhere. There, There is no judgment in Miss Charlotte's class until it's time for me to judge. <laughs> <clears throat> so Charlotte, Charlotte is at the head of the table. Daniel's on my virtual right. Jury's on my virtual left, but because space is meaningless in an audio format, floating just over my head is Emmy Doe. Emmy is a Renaissance woman, but not in the sense that she wears big skirts and throws the contents of her chamber pot out the window. She's been a farmer, she's done 100k runs, she's got her PhD in agricultural economics at the Tokyo University of Agriculture, and she climbs mountains. When I invited Emmy to join this podcast, she was on a mountain, which is kind of what you need to know about Emmy. Uh, do you want, do you have anything to add to that? Did I cover the base, the bases? Sure. Yeah. You got, you got the gist of it. Okay. The gist of it. All right. And I'm Andrew Wilner. I'm the artistic director of YTG. I do theater stuff and I convince people to be on podcasts. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's move into our first segment. Uh, this is our first episode. So I thought it would be a good idea for Charlotte to give us a bit of background on, uh, Wuthering Heights and the, the Bronte sisters, maybe in general, to give us a sense of context for what we're going to be, what we're, what we're reading, sure. what we have read so far. So, um, the Bronte sisters generally, um, 
the ones that we the ones that we're referring to when we talk about the Bronte sisters are really the three that survived childhood. Um, there were initially five of them. Uh, the oldest two died um, from a tuberculosis outbreak at the, the really, really shitty boarding school they went to. But uh, the surviving sisters, Charlotte, Anne, and Emily, published their first novels um, all in 1847. Charlotte Bronte's came out a little bit earlier, and then the, uh, the 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 other two came out a bit later. But Emily Bronte, so born eighteen eighteen, uh, lived in Yorkshire, uh, West Riding, for most of her life. Their father was uh, a curate, so a sort of low level um, Church of England clergyman, and. They kind of had the reputation of just being sort of isolated, living in like the wild moor lands of West Yorkshire. Um, they weren't very cosmopolitan, it's true, and they were mostly self-educated. Um, they're not as isolated as sort of the historical myth of them goes. Like they, they still had like newspapers and magazines and some correspondence with the outside world. And some of them were even quite traveled. Emily herself had been to Brussels uh, for some of her schooling, but overall they weren't terribly connected women of the world. So when their novels burst onto the scene uh, in 1847, uh, initially under pseudonyms, so Charlotte was called Currer Bell, uh, they kept the same initials, Currer Bell, uh, Emily went under Ellis Bell, uh, Anne Bronte, the, the youngest, went under Acton Bell. Uh, they were sort of a literary sensation, like these three unknown authors who sort of came out of seemingly nowhere with no significant connection to the literary landscape. And the subject matter of their novels was considered so so raw and coarse that it was it, it was sort of a minor scandal almost, especially once word came out that they were not, in fact, dudes. They were like three women in their like. 30s and people were really weirded out by that um but Wuthering Heights as I said published 1847 um is well how would I summarize Wuthering Heights it's kind of an incredibly depressing story um about the sordid goings-on uh at this estate called Wuthering Heights and the family that lives there couple of different families live there. The story mostly follows the exploits of one Heathcliff. Heathcliff is his only name, fun fact, and about his, let's say, melancholy and mercurial temper, and basically how much of a dick people in his adoptive family were to him his whole life and how he then is a dick to everyone else in the family for the rest of his life. So not fun subject matter, but it is nevertheless just a, an amazing accomplishment, especially when you consider that by the time she was writing Wuthering Heights, she was a virtual shut-in. Like, like most of us, like most of us this spring and summer, basically. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, the social isolation was kind of the state of being for a lot of people in rural areas at the time. Um, but Emily Bronte was, es 
especially isolated. She kept house and rambled on the moors. There's a lot of rambling out on the moors in Wuthering Heights, so get ready for lots of rambling. And that's about it. Like rambling on the moors, for some reason, I picture somebody on a unicycle. I have no <laughs> idea why. Just like that, to me, that's rambling. Um, I imagine it'd be quite hard to ride a unicycle on the moors. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, um, oh, it's a, actually, Daniel, wasn't your puppet school up in north of England? Yeah, the puppet school I attended was in a tiny town called Grassington, which uh, I believe... Sounds like a made-up name. I believe I heard that the Bronte sisters were... Did you say they were from a town called Hayworth? Um, they spent most of their, they spent most of their lives living in Hayworth. Um, it was the post that their father occupied from, I think, 1825 onward. Let me just double check on that date. I'm pretty sure it was 1825. So the place I studied was north of there, like straight north from there in Yorkshire. So I did spend a lot of time rambling on the moors myself. On a unicycle? Unfortunately, I did not have access to a unicycle. At least not so, after the first try. Slight correction. Uh, 1820 was when they moved to Hayworth. All right. Well, if we're done with that, we're going to move on to the next segment, which is the reader response. So uh, each week, one of us, uh, one of the readers, not Charlotte, will be preparing a response or a report on the chapters we've been assigned for that week. The reader can address any aspect of those chapters that resonate with them, but they will be constrained in what format they can prepare the report. So we'll be choosing next week's candidate and their format at the end of the show. But since this is the first week and the whole thing was my idea and I don't want to dump this on anyone else right away, I will be presenting the first reader report covering chapters one to three of the novel. I have written some some micro plays featuring um, featuring Lockwood, who is the main character in these first three chapters. He's the sort of our point of view character. Um, also kind of a jerk, <laughs> kind of a pretentious jerk. And uh, and to completely un unself aware about. So the first three chapters are done are told first person by someone who has zero self awareness. So what I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to share my screen so that you guys can see. Uh, you guys can see the script, and I've I've got these cast. So I'll, I'll be reading Lockwood since it's the main bulk and it's my response. I feel like I should be doing most of the work. Um, but so each of these sections they're separated by either the chapters or these little. Um, uh, little bars here. So, uh, for this first, for this first mini scene, Daniel, if you could play uh, Heathcliff. All right. Okay. So, here we go. I, I will play Lockwood. Are, are you Daniel's going to Heathcliff. give me any direction or? Uh, no. I think you've read the chapter. You know how you know how this goes. Okay. Um, yeah, this is pretty straightforward. So here we go. Good day to you, sir. Go fuck yourself. Ah, what a capital fellow. And scene one. Scene, chapter one, scene two. You, sir, are a true gentleman, if a little taciturn. This house must be full of servants. Stay in this room filled with vicious dogs. I have no reason to doubt my initial impression. Right. Chapter one, scene three. Sorry, I keep scrolling like that. Um, chapter one, scene three. I'd like to come back tomorrow. Please don't. See you at three. Okay. <laughs> So for chapter nice. two, for chapter two, well, thank you. Um, we'll see what Charlotte says at the end of this. But uh, <laughs> chapter two, scene one. This is a this is a this is a soliloquy. 
Hmm, this gate seems to be locked, and Heathcliff told me not to come back. I guess I'll just jump over it. I'm sure no one will mind. Ah, this gate is locked too. I should jiggle it and otherwise make a nuisance of myself. I cannot understand why a person would not receive visitors. Hmm, this also what happens when I talk to black people about reverse racism, women about how third-wave feminism have go has gone too far, and trans people about how there are only two real genders. I wonder why everyone else is so rude to me. <laughs> Chapter 2, Scene 2. Um, Harriton, uh, Emmy, could you... You'll have to, um, read the stage... You just read... Just look at the stage directions and, uh, do your best. So this is a non-speaking non role, but it's very important. All right, so here we go. Chapter two, scene two. Okay, just for for the for the listeners, that is the sound of the evil eye. <laughs> Harriton is giving Lockwood the evil eye. All right, here we go. One more time, Emmy. <laughs> oh, the young man giving me the evil eye is her husband. I must try not to be too charming, so she won't fall for me and regret having chosen him. I am exceedingly handsome. End of scene. Alright, moving on. Chapter 3. So this is, this is, uh, we got one short scene and a really big scene. So, um, Judy, if you could play Zilla here. Sure. Okay. Um, who is not destroying Tokyo, but is a, the housekeeper in this scene. Alright, uh, chapter 3, scene 1. Hide your candle and don't make any noise. The master never lets anyone stay here. Why is that? I don't know. Sounds perfectly fine. What could go wrong? End of chapter three, scene one. Okay, so this one's a little bit complicated. Emmy, you will be doing, you will be playing uh, wind and window. Uh, Judy, you will be the supposed fir tree. And Daniel, you will be playing Catherine. Oh, what happened? I, I lost my role as Heathcliff? I wasn't, Heathcliff's wasn't not in the satisfactory? scene. Satisfactory? Oh, oh. No, no, you, you, you're doubling up. It's okay. it's avant-garde theater. Oh, okay. Let's scritch, scritch, scritch. Like, just the noise? Yes. It's the noise of the branch, a branch against the window. Like, like the actual word? You can just say the actual word, okay. yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, with feeling. Okay, here we go. Chapter 3, scene 2. <sighs> Wind noises. What a dreadful noise! Oh, damnable noise! That fur bow brushing against the window. I shall open the window and deal with it. Ah, damn my eyes! The infernal thing is stuck. Hmm, what's the sensible thing to do? Aha! I shall put my fist through the glass. It's not like glass is horribly expensive in the 19th century, and I'm sure the moors are crawling with itinerant glaciers. Crush! That, that was the sound of the window breaking. I've got you now, tree! Ooh, ooh, I'm Catherine Linton, a creepy ghost, and that's my hand. Let me in. Now, what is the sensible thing to do? Ah, uh, uh, yes, saw this person's hand on the shattered glass of the window. Ooh, ooh, let me in. I'll make you a deal. You let go of my hand, and I'll let you in. I will not hurriedly pile these books here in a pyramid to block the window. Gentleman's honor. Ooh, that seems weirdly specific. But you did say gentleman's honor, so okay. Ha-ha, more fool you. I had my fingers crossed. Boom, boom, boom. The sound of books being piled in a pyramid against the window. Phew, I handled that pretty well. 
better than that young man who is less handsome than I. I am exceedingly handsome! Scene. Andrew, you did not make those sound effects easy for, for them to make. Those were difficult sound effects. Scritch, scritch, scritch is a difficult sound effect? Yes. <laughs> no, I, I, I actually, that last one, Emmy, that was perfect. You were just supposed to read what you were, what the sound was supposed to be. <laughs> so that was, it worked out well. Um, I have to admit, I really wanted to change my line to Heathcliff, it's me, it's Kathy. I come home and I'm so cold. Let me into your window. Why do I have a feeling you'll be quoting this every episode? Yeah, because I am. It's a, it's a good, uh, good, good thought. Accurate. All right. So we're going to the next section. Se- section. So this is, uh, this is feedback and uh, feedback and discussion. Not just about the response, but about the chapter. Like, did I, did I, you know, did I miss something? I mean, obviously, we're all going to we're focusing on specific things for the reader response. But what is everybody? What 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 was our experience of my reader response? It, I mean, it was my, brilliant. I, I, I will I will give you a grade after we've had this discussion. Yes. So yes, um, you can weigh in on the on the discussion itself, though, Charlotte. Hmm. You can participate in that. You don't have to wait till the end. So my my experience with with the first three chapters is just. I mean, it's really hard not to focus on Lockwood and because he's just, he's just so, it, it, yeah, he's just so self, like unself-aware and it's so, it's just, that's like at the forefront. And even honestly, for me, even the ghost thing was a little bit behind the, like, cause what's the, what's the plan there? So someone grabs your hand through a window and you rub it on the broken glass. Okay. One, if it's a ghost, that won't work. Right. If it is working and there's blood all over the place, which there is, it says, maybe it's magic because it, I think, seems to disappear later or something. They don't mention it again. Like, isn't he worried he's hurting a real person? But no, of course not, because he's fucking Lockwood and he doesn't care. <laughs> like, but it's it's weird. It goes from so like um, it feels like the beginning is so prosaic. Um, we skip the sort of scene where he actually gets attacked by a dog uh, in that in that response. It's so prosaic. And then suddenly there's a ghost. Just out of nowhere with like no indication that this is coming. No, it was, um, I think you really captured my, my complete confusion. Um, because he's so sarcastic and I'm not used to, or is it sarcasm or, or I mean, you interpreted it as being completely oblivious, but it just completely discombobulating as a reader where you're reading what the other characters are saying towards this Lockwood character and his processing of it is completely off the mark. It's it was very, very strange. So confused. So what did the rest of the class make of Lockwood as a narrator? <clears throat> the way that um, well, Lockwood was, yeah, Andrew... The way that you wrote it was very, like, Lockwood was oblivious. And the fact that he went back to Wuthering Heights when it was, like, bad weather, locked. Like, the gate was locked and the <laughs> Double door locked. was locked. Double locked! to And that was locks. kind of like, I don't know, it seemed really stupid. Like, it was like all the signs in the world was telling him not to go and he still did it. And that, that part was really interesting. And it was because the servant in his house was irritating him or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. because she was like <laughs> it was fixing dirty. the fire. 
Yeah, but she was fixing the fire and there was like cool, like ashes and Some stuff smoke in the air. In the air. I mean, we can relate to that, you know, if you have allergies or. <laughs> so let's go to the, let's go back to the place where I was attacked by the dog. That's much more comfortable. <laughs> Juno the dog. The place where I was attacked by a dog and in which everyone wants me to fuck right off. <laughs> Really, and they're not, they're not subtle about it. They're not like this isn't 19th century. These people are being polite. Like, please don't get the impression. Like, I'm I exaggerate Lockwood quite a bit in that little thing we just did, but I am not exaggerating the situation of people essentially. There, it's it's very thin. The the fuck off and die that most people sort of are the the vibe that most people are giving him is not subtle at all. You do not have to be a careful reader to pick up on this. Yeah, at the very end of chapter one, Lockwood basically says. So this is his narration. Before I went home, I was encouraged so far as to volunteer another visit tomorrow. He evidently wished no repetition of my intrusion. I shall go notwithstanding. It is astonishing how sociable I feel compared with him. Yeah, he wasn't even invited. He invited himself. He was specifically, I mean, it's implied that he was specifically told no. He evidently wished no repetition of my intrusion. Like, we don't hear it in the exact wording so we're left to sort of guess but like even from somebody as oblivious as lockwood i have to imagine it had to be pretty obvious for him to 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 sort of get to that point well i actually so i had this was my question from earlier um was that i have very little like cultural context for this so what kind of person rents like a mm. this kind of estate like in the middle of the countryside and what would he be doing for a living and yeah that's a good question and it actually in that context the fact that he is able to rent a fairly nice country estate with servants means that to a okay to a reader of that era they would recognize that anyone with the means to rent a country estate that has servants on staff and also seems to have a lot of time to spend rambling on the moors, they would immediately recognize him as a gentleman of some sort, not necessarily with an estate of his own, but certainly the means to, to, to rent, which means an independent source of income, usually in the form of some kind of property. So I guess to put it, in a modern analogy, he's kind of a trust fund kid. A trust fund kid who thinks that living out in the country is charming and romantic and goes to a small town and basically attempts to ingratiate himself with the locals and fails miserably. Hmm. So, like, he's a privileged little white boy. Like, it's <laughs> kind of a little shit. And the, the readers of the day would know that. They would know that it's not everybody who can afford to just rent a country estate and hire servants so that he can sit around on his arse doing nothing but annoying everyone around him. I think we all knew that too, though. Well, yeah, but it, it would have been a far more recognizable archetype to somebody in that in that era. Okay. Well, is there anything? Is there so? Is there anything we've missed that's like super important in these first three chapters that that needs to be that needs to be brought up so that people can contextualize? If they're reading along with us, they can contextualize. If they're not reading along with us, they don't miss anything important. Well, 
why don't we talk a little bit about the events of chapter three? I'm going to put it to the class. What, what did you get out of chapter three? Like what happens just in the chapter itself? Because it's a bit of a weird one. And, and I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. Things definitely took a turn in tone. Um, it really, we really got into scary horror, spooky story with like different Kathy's names carved into a mysterious room, which is something that we didn't get any, in my personal experience, reading the book wasn't it like, I didn't see it coming other than what I knew from previously from the Kate Bush song, of course. (laughs) What else happens in chapter three though? So Lockwood is set up uh, by the housekeeper in this foreboding closed off room that Heathcliff really doesn't want him to stay in. And so he sees these names carved into the windowsill. Yeah. He also finds her, he also finds the diaries that she's essentially written in the margins and spaces and in, in other books mm-hmm. and starts reading them. And so we get like, we have our first sort of, we get like a, a flashback. He's a bit of a nosy Nancy, isn't he? I think that's what they say in Yorkshire. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I think that 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 sort of flashback where he's reading the journal section is interesting because well, there's two. Th- okay, one one weird thing: the dialect is transliterated the same, but I assume that's happening because Lockwood is remembering what he read. Right, because otherwise that doesn't make sense. Why would why would why would Catherine have written it in the dialect, the same one that hold Lockwood... hold that thought? Because okay. when we get to the pop quiz later, that's actually going to be okay. one of my questions. So um, hold, hold that thought. Wait, Andrew, I didn't pick that up. Can you? <laughs> well, you know the bits where the the the, the like uh, Joseph speaks in like a really yeah. thick Yorkshire accent, and it's really hard to read. Yeah. Um. So. Lockwood, when Joseph speaks and Lockwood's narrating, he writes it that way. He, right, you know, right. It comes out that way. But then he also, when he's reading Catherine's journal or diary, um, whatever you want to call it, when Joseph speaks in that, he also speaks in exactly the same way. That's right. And it seems weird that two people would phonetically translate a dialect in exactly the same way. But again, if Lockwood's remembering it, I don't know, maybe. But I'll stick a pin in that as requested by Charlotte. Gotcha. There was also, I mean, the introduction of these other characters, and I'm starting to get a little bit confused as to all of these, like, you know, there's that Hindley character, mm, yeah, and Hindley's wife, is it? Francis? Francis, I think, yeah. yeah. And they're all lovey-dovey, <laughs> but horrible to Heathcliff and Catherine. Who change, whose name changes a bunch. Bibles and going to church. It was, it was like, like, not just Bibles, but like, like sort of religious commentary texts, mm-hmm. it seemed. Yeah. Because they had like these weird titles, which I can't remember offhand, but. Right before this section of the book started, there was a part where Mrs. Heathcliff said, you know, there's only four people. And I was like, oh, thank goodness. We only need to keep track of four characters. And then a dream sequence thing, ghost story came, and there was all these more characters, and it was... Can't keep count. And they, yeah, they all get, like, sort of slammed in your face at once. And without context, because he's just reading a section of a diary. Like, zero context. Totally. Very, very confusing. Is this... 
Charlotte, is this like level of complexity typical for Victorian era novels? Because it it see it reads a lot more modern to me. I mean, other than the the like the construction of the language, the the structure of the story kind of feels more modern. So this technique, the technique of somebody starting off a narrative and then a lot of information sort of being given piecemeal as we go and we haven't gotten there yet. That's going to start sort of in chapter four. Somebody taking up a narrative about a, a much older period of time. That's generally called a frame narrative, like where you have someone who is in the story telling the story about an, a, a different story. It is a bit atypical to introduce characters just by name without a whole lot of exposition leading to them. Like this was not a very common way to set up a story. It would have been, it would have been novel and a lot of people would have probably felt the same degree of confusion that we do today. It's not just because it's an old novel. It's, it's a confusing novel and it would have been confusing when it came out. And I would venture to say that's kind of the point we're looking at this from a narrative viewpoint of somebody who is totally oblivious. So thrusting the reader into the same sort of position where we hear all these names, we don't know who the fuck they are or have any context. It kind of reflects the reader's bewilderment themselves when Lockwood has sort of the same experience of just who the hell are these people? I only know names from a diary. And then we do later find out who they are. But this is pretty low on context, and I think deliberately a little bit little bit confusing. Okay. I guess you should give me a grade. Yeah, so in terms of the reading response, I was sort of thinking, like, how would I give you a grade both for sort of the, the artistry of, of your little mini-play and also the content of it? And... I will say the content was fine. It was quite lively. Um, really good, I think. Really good capturing of the dynamic between Lockwood and everyone else. Um, let's see. Didn't know if I was so fond of the sound effects part and the assigning <laughs> people to inanimate objects. It's a little bit like I am a wall from the Pyramus and Thisbe play in Midsummer Night's Dream. I don't know <laughs> if that was your inspiration. Um, but also bear in mind that the Pyramus and Thisbe play is itself a deliberately bad play. So I wasn't sure whether you were going for deliberately bad or whether you just kind of ended up there. So I'm giving it a B minus. All right. So not oh, it's bad. basically my average not, through not university. Fantastic, but B minus. Solid B minus student. Not bad Daniel, enough to be in the C range, but. <laughs> well, thank you for that, Daniel. Did you did you have something you were going to interject there? I was. I was gonna. I was gonna point out that you didn't mention Joseph and and try to try to get you a lower mark, but now I feel guilty about that. <laughs> oh no, it's okay. <laughs> It's okay. I, you guys can you guys can pipe in and and give give Charlotte encouragement to bring down the person's grade or bring up the person's grade if you want. That that's part of the thing. I mean, all judgment okay. is mine in the end. But in, you may advocate for one of your fellow classmates. So now it's time for the uh, the fun fact. 
And now, it's time for Miss Charlotte's Bronte Bites. Bronte Bite number one. Guess we're calling them Bronte Bites then. <laughs> Apparently. Okay. I thought so, it should have some introduction. We can workshop that as the podcast goes. <laughs> um, so, there's this wonderful quote from the, the, the start of the Wikipedia page on Emily Bronte. Um, currently, as of date of recording... So she also published one book of poetry with her sister Charlotte and Anne titled Poems by Currer, Ellis, and Acton Bell, with her own poems finding regard as poetic genius. Now, the fun fact about that, they're overselling it a little bit on her poems finding regard as poetic genius, not because they're bad, but because when that book of poetry came out, it sold three copies some sources say two some say three I'd, I'd actually have to like look at the publisher's list to get the actual like definitive number but yeah S so it's not like she found regard in her own time as a poetic genius in fact she she died in 1848 nice. she barely lived to see any of the success of her novel which is kind of sad it wasn't until after they became much more famous that people then went back and looked at their poetry and were like, oh, this isn't bad. But when it came out, you know, a, a poetry collection by three complete unknowns. I mean, you're not going to look at that on the booksellers list and be, oh, I've been waiting for the edition of Ellis Currer and Acton Bell poetry. No, it would have been three random names, collection of poetry, not very enticing. So, anyway, that's this my fun This has been Miss Charlotte's Fun Facts, brought to you by Doritos. I don't think we can legally say brought to you by Doritos, <laughs> but... Our next segment is the Cathartic Pop Quiz. Cathartic Pop Quiz. Okay. This is cathartic for Charlotte, not for us. I'm going to pop you're my right, knuckles you're, here. You're the butt end of this. So... <clears throat> No cheating, no having Google or Wikipedia windows open for us. Mm. I'm allowed. It has... Yeah, oh. she's a teacher. She's allowed. Right. So, my first question, to get to something that we were discussing a little while ago, what do you all make of Joseph's accent, and why do you think that the accent, written as it is, is included in the story at all? Yes, Daniel. From the time I spent in Yorkshire, uh, that's how a lot of people talk and... It's like they're speaking a completely different language. I also have to say that my experience with um, uh, Airbnb is very similar to Lockwood's experience renting a property <laughs> on a smaller scale. I didn't have servants and everything, but really Yorkshire hasn't changed in the last 300 years. It's like exactly the same place. Uh, I also had to walk through the moors in pitch black one night when it was snowing and it was, it was a nightmare. I, it took me like five hours to go on what was normally like a three minute walk. Uh, so I think it's to show the alienation between Lockwood and how going to Yorkshire is almost like if he's from London, I don't know if he is. It's like going to Yorkshire is like going to a, almost a completely different country. So I'm going to give you seven points for your answer. The points are arbitrary. I'm pulling numbers okay. out of my arse here. Um, right. Does anyone want to offer an additional reading? Okay, so it's interesting because it's only Joseph and there are other servants. So it's not, a, it's, I thought initially it was like a class thing, but I wonder if it's to show that somehow that he's more coarse 
which would be a really weird thing for someone who actually lived in Yorkshire to do. But like, he's not a he's not a nice guy. This is someone who has had like very little education, but also like doesn't seem to care about education other than those Bible books. That's a pretty good read. The fact that the act that the Yorkshire accent is so thick is definitely a strong indication that he, yeah, he is kind of coarse. It was not terribly common at this time to include such strong markers of, of accent. Sir Walter Scott kind of kicked off that trend earlier in the century, but it did catch on with every author. And usually if you saw a really thick accent in print like that, it was a strong indication that we're meant to, 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 to focus our attention on the regionality of that character. Uh, to suggest that they are indeed someone who has probably never left home, hasn't interacted with people of various different accents, doesn't really have a grasp on, I guess, what we consider standard English, like the sort of more southern Englishy, Englishy accent. So I think that you are on the money with that. Um, but it was a supplement, and you springboarded off of Daniel, so I'm only giving you three points for that. Okay. <laughs> But they're bonus points, so consider yourself consider yourself duly rewarded. Now, <clears throat> let's go to my next question. What is the dog's name? And is there any significance to it? What What do you all think? <laughs> Amy and I are like, <laughs> unless you can answer, I don't. The dogs have a name. Juno, that dog, or another? oh, so. Um, Yes, you're correct. It's Juno. Five points for getting the name. Now, if you want to take a stab at the significance, or if there is a significance to that name, what it might be. Andrew? So Juno was Zeus's wife, and she was notoriously jealous and bad-tempered. Bad um, she didn't... I'm, I'm right, right? Like, like, but the character, anyway. I know I'd not be right about the significance in the novel, but uh, Juno is like the... Juno is a Roman name for Hera, I think. I was about completely... to dock you a point because you said wife of Zeus, but yeah. then, 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 so then you corrected Jupiter. Yourself, so. Yeah. Jupiter. Um, so, yeah. So I, I think it's, I think it's like this, the sort of strong, strong sort of aggressive feminine energy would be my, would be my, would be my guess in terms of that being a literary reference. All right. Andrew's response is pretty fair. Juno, or Hera, as she was to the Greeks, is, as represented in mythology, very, very jealous and temperamental. And, like, it, in the novel, Wuthering Heights, we're told that she has a litter of puppies that she is jealously guarding. And the Hera, or the Juno, of mythology was also pretty overprotective of her kids. She was also like the goddess of motherhood, essentially. Like yeah. that's the one you prayed the you prayed to if you were like a wife or a mother. So we have both a, a character who is the sort of very overbearing, protective type, uh, but also quite vicious when somebody fucks with her or her kids. So what we get is, I, I think, a pretty good allusion to the fact that. This house is just filled with both people and animals with very, very prickly temperament. So I'm going to give you another five. So my next question is, why do you think Lockwood has so much confusion 
around the true relation between Mrs. Heathcliff and the other inhabitants of the house. So just to give the readers a bit of background, when he goes to Wuthering Heights, there's a young woman there uh, named Mrs. Heathcliff. He calls her that at first and nobody corrects him. And in fact, that is her name. But then there's some confusion about whether she's Heathcliff's wife, whether she's his daughter, whether she's the she's the wife of the, the, the guy who's living there, whose name turns out to be Hareton. Like, why is there so much confusion about her identity and how she relates to the rest of the family? Yes, Emmy. Lockwood is used to a more defined family structure, kind of like a nuclear family type situation. I'm going to give you partial credit. I'll give you two points for that, because it is an odd domestic arrangement they have. But just to clarify, the notion of a nuclear family, um, sort of the household of two parents, their kids... 2.5 of them, and white picket fence. That sort of definition of the nuclear family really only came out really after World War II. A lot of households were pretty mixed, and they were a mixed bag both of family members, not just immediate family, but like in-laws and cousins, aunts, and also domestics, like domestic servants. So this would not necessarily have been as atypical as we would find it today, but it would have been a little bit odd for two unrelated and currently unmarried young man and woman to be living in the same household. And the, the, the readers would have recognized, oh, this is a little bit suspect. Is there maybe something going on between the two of them? We have no idea what goes on in that secluded house up on the moors. So it's, it's a little bit spicy. Um, Spicy. But are there any other, any other guesses as to why, and I'll give you a little bit of a hint, why the name Mrs. Heathcliff would have posed such confusion to Lockwood? Daniel. Is it because Heathcliff is an orange cat from the funny papers, along with Kathy, who is always trying to lose weight and beat Mr. I'm Rose? giving you negative 10 points for that. Oh, no. You're now at negative three, Daniel. You're on thin ice. Wow. Um, Jury. Um, so you're not on the board yet. <laughs> what, are, what do you have? So, so what are your observations on the name Mrs. Heathcliff and why that's sort of giving Lockwood such difficulty? Right. Well, he says that he seems that like there's a two, like a big age difference between Heathcliff and Mrs. Heathcliff. Maybe that was confusing to him, and if he was, if she was the wife or some other relative, definitely the age difference is a big throw-off factor. Um, I'm gonna say four points for that answer. Um, it would not have been terribly uncommon for an older man to have a much younger wife, but. It would have been, it would have been remarkable even back then, just the age difference between the two of them. Um, so that definitely adds to the confusion. So I'm going to sort of give you the answer that I was looking for, because that is my prerogative as the, as the teacher. There was a whole very complex system of like forms of address for people and like the honorifics that you would give them. 
if somebody is a Mrs. Heathcliff, you would understand, first of all, that she was or is currently married. And the natural instinct would be to look for who the husband is. And so the reason his initial instinct is, well, that must be, that must be Heathcliff's wife. That would have been the natural conclusion. So despite the fact that there is that age disparity, as you mentioned, Juri, it would still have been the most likely answer in Lockwood's brain. And that's also why he takes a stab in the dark and thinks, okay, well, her name is Mrs. Heathcliff. There's got to be a relation between her and Heathcliff somehow. She would not be his daughter because she is definitely married and she would have taken the last name of a husband. And the only other dude there is Harriton Earnshaw. So then he's like, well, must that must be Heathcliff's son. So yeah, the confusion comes entirely from this sort of weird honorific system that, I mean, we still have today, but it's not quite as... It's not quite as set in stone for us. Daniel, you have your hand up. Are you going yeah. to redeem yourself? Yeah, I thought maybe I could get a bonus point. Is another reason that he that Lockwood could be confused is because Heathcliff is the first name and she's Mrs. Heathcliff, which would mean that Heathcliff is the last name and they don't know he doesn't understand if Heathcliff is the first name or the last name. I'm gonna give you a point for creativity. Yes! Just for how convoluted that is. Uh but you're also getting the, the the creativity point because it does turn out to be relevant in the novel. Like, Ooh. it would have been very Psychic odd, point. as we're going to find out, that Heathcliff is actually his first and last name. It was the only name he was given. And that would have been super duper name. weird for and somebody no, like, to share have back then. just one name. It also would have, to the readership, signified the fact that he is of no clear parentage because he just has one name and it's not clear whether that is a family name or a Christian name, as they would have called it. So there's also a hint of irreligiosity. I don't know if that's a word. If if, if it isn't, I just invented it. Um, so yeah, there's a hint. There's a whiff of brimstone about this guy. He's He's got a name, but it's probably not a Christian name. Is he an orphan? Gonna give you another four points for that. So I think if we have time for one more question. Yep, that'll be the tiebreaker. Okay. So this one's going to be more um on the literary craft going into it. What kinds of techniques did you did you come across that help to establish the setting? Like how does the text set the mood? And for that matter, what kind of a mood do you get from these first three chapters? The mood that I got was very gloomy and kind of ominous. It, it almost like felt very cliched. It was a dark and stormy night kind of thing. Um, and uh, I don't, I, but I can't recall what exactly it, like there was obviously a lot of descriptors about um, the landscape and the weather, but um, I'm not sure what did it, but I, that's definitely the taste that I have in my mouth. That answer kind of made me squee in delight a little bit um, because it's it, it's very on point for something that I, I want to briefly elucidate. So I'm going to give you 10 points for that because it's a really great way to springboard into it. That line, it was a dark and stormy night, that 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 sort of cliche, um, 
I know. I believe that was what Snoopy wrote at the beginning of his novel, <laughs> On Top of the Doghouse, with his keyboard. You're, you're in, hot, you're, you're, you're in hot water here. You're on thin ice, my dude. You are... Okay, I'm giving you another negative five points. Oh my god. <laughs> All right. Note to self, Miss Charlotte does not like the Sunday funnies. I get it. <laughs> so it is from so Edward Bulwer-Lytton, uh, whose full title is Edward George Earl Lytton Bulwer-Lytton, first Baron Lytton, who was... The model for Lockwood, it sounds like, just by his name. <laughs> okay, I, I, I would like to, before I start bashing... Um, Bulwer-Lytton as, as an author, he was immensely popular. And the phrase, it was a dark and stormy night, um, was actually the opening words of the novel, so 1830, Paul Clifford, which I haven't actually read. Gonna put that one on the, on the to-do pile. Um, but he was known for writing very sort of bombastic, very, let's say, pseudo-gothic style works and that's actually what i wanted to springboard off of that mood that we have the sort of isolated out on the moors hints of a ghost story of ancient secrets in the family that's very much a hallmark of gothic literature now gothic literature as as a sort of historical genre would have reached its heyday in the late 18th sort of early 19th century and those were stories usually based on what 18th and 19th century people thought went on in medieval Europe. So they had these very historically inaccurate ideas that the medieval era was all about, you know, tortures and the, the, the gross proclivities of, of the aristocrats, which, I mean, happened, but not to the degree that the, the 18th and 19th century believed. In fact, a lot of the sort of torture instruments that were in museums People in the 19th century just invented those. They were like, oh, yeah, they probably had Iron Maidens and shit with spikes on the inside. There's no evidence that those actually existed in the medieval era. Um, Iron but Maiden? Gothic... Excellent! You're going to lose a point for that. Oh, damn. <laughs> Sorry, I should stop docking points for when people try to inject levity into the class. Oh, no, 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 that's what this is all about. Okay, good. Um, the fact that the... Action of the story is set in 1801, so sort of in the sort of later period where gothic fiction was still a very popular genre, is, I think, significant. But it would have been a bit of a disconnect, because this is gothic stuff that's happening in good old England. I mean, it's the north of England, so it's a little bit wild, but it would have still been... You know, we're not talking about the 14th century on the, the continent. We're talking about you know, more or less the present, I mean, 50 years ago, right in in the backyard with all of these ancient secrets and ghosty happenings. So, anyway, uh, that's all that I have for discussion questions. I should probably tabulate your grades. And tell us huh. who is the teacher's pet and who is the class dunce. So let's see, Andrew. So in addition to your reader response grade, which I'm not counting in terms of points. No, that's a letter grade. So that's that's a letter grade. Um, <clears throat> you came out with seven points total. Uh, right. Jury, you got eight for your contribution. Woo. Uh, Emmy, you just fucking killed it. You got 17 points. Oh. And Daniel. <laughs> well, Daniel, you've got a lot of heart. 
Um, but you've also got, you've got negative seven points. I'm going to have to try harder for next time. The important fact is that you tried to try. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to have to award the teacher's pet to Emmy for this episode. Yay. And Daniel, you got to wear the dunce cap. There's no actual dunce cap because, you know, it's an audio medium. But imagine Daniel wearing a dunce cap. It's purple. Can you see it? Is uh, it in, I is see it. In it. It's in my mind's eye. eye. Yeah. All right. We're on the next. We're on the assignment of homework. So first of all, we have to figure out who's going to do the reader report for next episode. Um, Charlotte will be rolling dice for the people who haven't gone in this four episode cycle yet. So, uh, Charlotte, if you could do the honors. Okay. So according to the dice roll that I just did, jury. Got it. You will be doing the reader response for next episode. And Emmy, from that list, assign the form that it will take. Let me just explain it to the, let me just explain to the listeners that the teacher's pet gets to decide the form of the reader response from a from a list that was prepared by by Daniel. I think also if she has her own idea, she can say oh, yeah. her own idea. I doesn't think we can add yes, to this list. <laughs> if you've got a neat creative idea for your reader response that's not from the list, um, and you, you want to sort of work that out with Emmy, you can. Or Emmy, if you've got an idea that you just, you're dying to see Jury tackle, then by all means. But I just think Jury's artistic background is so well suited to the diorama. Like, let's be <laughs> Okay. We're, oh gosh. We're doing I'll the diorama try. right at the start. <laughs> I think it'd be amazing. So, Judy's doing the reader response next week. She's going to make a diorama that we will describe on air. And what chapters are we reading for next week, Charlotte? Next episode, we'll be looking at chapters four through six. Okay, chapters four through six. Got it. So, uh, the only thing left for me to do is to say. Thank you. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Emmy. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Daniel, for being with me here tonight uh, doing this crazy thing. And, uh, yeah, rock on. Outro and music. Thank the rest of you for being such excellent students. Class dismissed. <laughs> <laughs>